America. My name is Aimee Osei from Kong. I come to you live every Friday and to talk about the issues of the day. And today we are going to talk a little bit about the tale of Jim Clyburn because, you know, a funny thing happened in the Ohio 11th race with Nina Turner where Jim Clyburn kind of comes in and talks to all the pastors and, and says, you know, you got to vote for Nina. I mean, you got to vote for Brown because I support Brown and Brown supports me. And, you know, Miss Nancy's been real good to me and we don't want any, you know, bumptious Negro going in there and upsetting the cart because, you know, Miss Nancy knows me real good and we will uh, help out black folks folks, if you vote in Brown, who will then help me, and then I know how to sing and dance for Miss Nancy, and then uh, Miss Nancy will give us what we like, right? That's what Jim Clyburn goes into uh, Ohio 11th, Ohio's 11th District and says, and he's, he's driving Miss Nancy. He's, he's Morgan Freeman, right? You know, Miss Daisy's real good to us. She taught me how to read, and that's Jim Clyburn's job. And he's very good at his job and he likes the power of his job. He's kind of like, you know that, you remember Django Unchained? I assume some of you guys have at least seen Django Unchained. Django Unchained, there's a scene where Jimmy Fox kind of rides up to a plantation and Samuel L. Jackson's character kind of sees him from the window and sees him riding a horse and then walks all the way through the house and says, no, 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 no. What's up? This is my daughter. She just came in the room. What's going on? So Samuel L. Jackson comes in and says, no, 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 no. And that goes all the way through the house. That is Jim Clyburn going all the way through America to end in Ohio's 11th district and say, no, Nina Turner. I'm not taking any Negro who's going to screw up, you know, our good gig, my good gig. Right, and and uh, Jim Clyburn's a good house Negro, and he did what he he did what house Negroes did, you know. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Suma said we sick, <laughs> and uh, and Jim Clyburn says I know where the tonic is. So he went and and uh, and he is that. By the way, that's an old Malcolm X reference to uh, the house Negroes and the field Negroes. The house Negroes will. Um, when the master gets sick, the house Negroes go to the master and say, we sick, boss? We sick? <laughs> Meanwhile, the field Negroes trying to figure out how to cut the master's throat as he ought to. So um, uh, we sick. So, so Jim Clyburn goes up to Miss Nancy and says, we sick. And Miss Nancy says, we are sick. You know, Nina Turner makes me feel ill. Uh, called uh, Hillary Clinton some names. And so the field Negro and field Negro, uh, house Negro and house Negro politics makes its way down to um, uh, uh, Ohio 11th district. And, and the result is that Clyburn says that like, look, I can work with these people. I know these people. They will give me the best deal America, uh, black people can get. All Nance, all Nina Turner will do will go there and make us look bad and screw it up for people like me who are just trying to do the best um, uh, we can for black people, right? So Jim Clyburn was the good cop. He wants to. He's, this is what Jim Clyburn does to maintain his. Um, status as the good cop to, Nancy, uh, to Nina Turner's bad cop, right? And 
you just have to understand that that's his gig. But that's been the gig since Booker T. Washington played the gig, played that same role. Booker T. Washington told black people like, look, whenever like we can't be politically equal with these, but them, but they like me, so let me go up to Washington, let me meet T uh, Teddy Roosevelt, let me speak on our behalf. We'll get some nice things. We'll get to your university. We'll get you to Stegie. We'll get you some things. And I uh, just don't ask for political equality or expect to be equal or expect like, um, you know, some sort of respite from white terrorism. But what I can do is get you these nice little things. And I can do it because they like me, not because it's just, they don't care about justice. I can do it because they like me and they feel sorry for me. And I know how to dance real well and I sing real well. And um, they like me. So that's how I'll get the money. And they like the idea of you being controllable and um, somewhat productive. And so I can get you the money and not their problem, right? So I can get you the money and, and we'll be able to do nice projects because they like me. Not because it's just, um, but because they like me. And so that's a politics, that's the politics that both Booker T. Washington and Jim Clyburn offer white people. The politics of them like, of, of like, we can get nice things, not by fighting for it, but because they like us, but we just have to be likable. And Jim Clyburn is likable to Miss Nancy. Miss Nancy's not scared of Jim Clyburn. Ms. Jim Clyburn's not there to negotiate with Miss Nancy. He's there to ask, to plead. And because Miss Nancy likes him and he sings and dances real well, um, sometimes Miss Nancy gives him a bone and then he comes back and kind of distributes the bones to, to poor black people. Right? So Nancy Turner, uh, Nina Turner is going up there trying to think like she's going to demand things as a matter of right, <laughs> as a matter of dignity for black people in black communities, uh, or she might even pretend to, and Nancy Pelosi doesn't like any of that. Jim Clyburn doesn't like any of that because that's not black politics for Clyburn. Black politics for Clyburn is like pleading and asking and putting our hands out for, for white Democrats to say, oh, the bad guys are the Republicans. The bad guys are not Democrats. Democrats are nice to us. Miss Nancy's been real good to us. Miss Clinton been real good. I bet Jim Clyburn, 80-year-old man, calls Hillary Clinton Miss Clinton. Miss he doesn't say Hillary. <laughs> Hillary. He doesn't say Hillary. He says Miss Clinton. Miss Clinton. Can, can Miss Nancy? Miss Hillary? Can 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 you can can you please give us good Negroes a little again a little something something a little campaign cash? Miss Hillary, can you make a phone call for him to get my my son my daughter a job? Miss Hillary, that's that's. Uh, that's Jim Clyburn's politics with Democrats, right? So, and then they want us to be attack dogs against Republicans. But really, black people, our fights are internal to the Democratic Party because that's the only place we have power, right? Because they have to leverage, the Republicans are supposed to be our enemy, right? They don't, like, us protesting them doesn't actually move anything. Us protesting Democrats screws up the whole narrative because... The illusion is that we're on the same side. And this is what Cori Bush proved in uh, this week with the eviction of moratoriums. And people say one congressperson doesn't have a job, uh, doesn't have any power. No, Cori Bush knew her job, and her job was to clarify the fight. And that's what she did. Cori Bush has been homeless. So she, she'll go on protest for five days outside and uh, make everybody look bad. Um, so Cori Bush changed everybody, changed um, the the, the Democratic president's mind because he was making her, she was making him look bad. Right? So that's what one congressperson can do. They have, they don't have privilege access to like Congress insofar as they only have one vote, but they do have privilege access to the media insofar as if they protest, every single media um, outlet is almost duty bound to cover it 
and to take her statement. And that kind of power, imagine me with that kind of power. Don't vote for me for Congress if I ever run for Congress. Don't vote for me for Congress because I can necessarily like do the inside game um, and get legislation passed. Vote for me for Congress because they would be terrified of getting, <laughs> of, of getting me upset and then having me go to MSNBC or CNN or even Fox. I'll go to Fox as a Democratic congressman. And they would love to have me and I will say all sorts of things about them. Um, so they'd be terrified for that. So they don't want Nina Turner um, going to Congress and insulting other Democrats as she would do if Democrats weren't doing right. So, you know, Nina Turner has her issues if you look back, um, you know, a few years and years and years and years and years. Um, but like pretty much ever since she decided to uh, not go with the plantation Democrats in 2016, she's, I don't know, she's actually, I think she's a good candidate and she ran a good campaign as other institutions. I did a whole video on, on Turner before, and this I wanted to focus on Jim Clyburn. But before that, uh, let me hit the beat and I'm going to hit you with a story afterwards. To the beat, Good to me. Never change the ways for the world or the government. If it was the president, then I would stay fat. You leave it up to me, I paint the White House black and ain't no future in your front. So I was, uh, you know, one of my friends, Gabriel Mars, he's actually a pretty good political theorist out of Amherst right now. And he was talking about drunk driving and how we kind of created the drunk driver. It used to be, and you guys, some of you guys who are watching this remember this, in the 60s, 70s, well, definitely before the 70s. Um, I wasn't live yet, but I, I know enough to know that, like, we created the drunk driver in the late 70s with Mothers Against Drunk Driving in the 80s with Nancy Reagan and all that. But for the most part, it was used to be just people who drove when they were drunk and they were all sorts of cutesy excuses for it about like, well, you know, it calms my nerves, had a stressful day. It actually makes me safer on the road. Oh, it's no big deal. Um, it's not that big of a deal. So the idea that we had to create the drunk driver is as a like boogeyman is something that we did and was really coercive. Like there were, there were some institutional pressures uh, and so far as car insurance industries realized that they could make a lot of money by creating a drunk driver and then charging everybody else for insurance off of it. And then, so there was a, co a confluence of interests. And then, like I said, mothers against drunk driving. And then all, then it was just like generic safety interests. But pretty much people like always said, individual choice, individual choice. I should be able to drink, put what I want to in my body and, and go out and, and drive if I want to. It's all about individual choice. But um, we had to like do this huge, coercive, stigmatizing campaign that was like multi-layered to create something called the drunk driver. And it worked. It worked. And then, you know, there was a, a financial interest in it for auto insurance companies. But, all, but like we created the drunk driver in the 80s. We had after-school specials on it and very special episodes of your favorite family ties. Um, uh, you know, everybody, everybody on every sitcom was getting killed by a drunk driver. <laughs> or, or like, so we made it a thing, and so it became a thing. It wasn't a thing before. It was just people who drank and drive and then, like, occasionally drove, right? Like, they didn't even... Um, classify it as a different kind of accident. But these are all 
these are all political artifacts. And appropriately so, but I'm just saying that people who say that, you know, there's no space for coercion in politics, we can't shame them. No, that's exactly how we created the drunk driver. We shamed them. And I actually think we should take this seriously when we talk about systemic justice uh, and injustice and how you fight it, especially racial justice or labor justice. We're going to have to use multifarious um, means to do it. And this includes like coercion and this includes like state um, media and propaganda and culture. And, and one reason why I do this show is to teach you, help you learn that this is going to come through a lot of tears. Racial justice and labor justice is going to come through a lot of tears and a lot of excuses. And just think about all the excuses people used to give for drunk driving. I, I have uh, my friend Gabriel, go ahead and go to my uh, Facebook page. And, uh, you know, he gave you a list of them. And just, just, just understand that this is part of the political fight. This is part of the political fight. Um, creating the narrative and creating the bad actors and like understanding that and stigmatizing them and categorizing them and essentialize them because you can't fight against drunk drivers unless there's such a thing as a drunk driver. So you have to create a category and then say like, well, no. And then some people say like, well, not all drunk drivers. Blank and blank drives better when he's drunk. And, and like you'll get all of that, but you fight right through it, right? And so um, we're going to have to do that when it comes to racial labor justice. We're going to have to do that with respect to reparations. We're going to need a full media campaign, a very special episodes. I'm like, I want like... What I want is to show how like Etna made money off of slaves and then how that money just kind of grew. The Etna, Etna insured slaves and how that money just grew for like the evolution of that dollar and where that dollar went and how many white hands it changed and paid for like off of that slave dollar. Um, you know, I had a few different shows planned for this week. One of them, I wanted to do and I'll just do it for uh, next week, or maybe I'll do two or three next week because I'm a little backlog with my ideas, is the, um, the relationship between black NCAA pain in football, like bad hips and bad knees. And like, look, you talk to college football players, even college basketball players, mostly college football players, they're in pain from like age 35 on. Uh, they're walking with a limp. And uh, these guys who played on the practice squad. And if you go to the NFL, you're walking with two canes and you're like 45, you got two canes. Um, so, uh, so like there's a lot of damage that's done in, in college football and football in general, but especially college football because it doesn't have the payoff as the NFL. And um, so what Title IX does, the relationship between black pain and college football and like USA women dominance in the Olympics, right? And so I'll tell you the story real quickly, and I'll go into it in details um, next, next week. So Title IX distributes money that's pretty much made by football. If Title IX was just about black, oh, uh, male lacrosse players getting as much money as female lacrosse players, that'd be one thing. But it's not. It's about like, football funding everything. <laughs> um, black and you know, football is disproportionately black and disproportionately violent on those black bodies. Um, it's not, you know, white people play on special teams, but pretty much like defense where you get crushed on every play. That's those, those are black guys. And, um, so title nine pretty much distributes money generated to football to like female lacrosse and women's water polo, which are disproportionately white. Why are they disproportionately white? Well, they're disproportionately white because the college scholarship then sets up as the organizing principle for all of these other like suburban, like high school and youth leagues. 
right? So you have these youth girls soccer leagues and youth, um, you know, women's volleyball leagues with the idea that like, well, if my daughter does real well here, they'll earn a scholarship in college. And that scholarship in college is going to be funded by, um, uh, you know, the, the Title IX distribution, which is going to distribute all the money that's made in football to like, you know, all of these uh, other sports, right? So pretty much, and then all of those people who play in all of the sports, uh, that's where you get your Olympic athletes. So our women are doing pretty well in, um, in, in the Olympics, much better than our men are, and we're sending more women than men. And a lot of that's because of Title IX, and a lot of the money that, uh, gener- that flows to women through Title IX goes through black pain in football. Right? And so these youth leagues, like I said, um, the college scholarship for women sets up the organizing principle for now white parents can invest in youth leagues with the understanding that if their kid does really well in those youth leagues, they will get a scholarship um, at the college level right? in whatever you know, uh, sport they're, 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 they're doing. Right? So uh, now parents, instead of investing in college, they can invest in the youth leagues, white parents in the suburbs. And then like, you know, the ponytail brigade can go and uh, ponytail because, you know, these are white girls. Um, the ponytail brigade can go and like, now participate in, in youth soccer. In, not just youth soccer, field hockey, water polo, all these things that black people don't do. Um, although there was a black uh, water polo player I saw, she played goalie, which I think is probably a racialized position because of the punishment you take. Um, you know, it's, you take a lot of, to the head <laughs> when you play goalie. That's, you know, white girls don't want to do that. So there is a, uh, take a lot of damage to the head. So that's, that's going to be my show next week. I'll, I'll, I'll trace the evolution of Title IX from black pain to like white under 10 youth leagues in fencing, right, or archery. Um, so, so here is, uh, but what I wanted to talk about was Jim Clyburn and the politics of the idea that you could just be nice. Nice. Uh, and that we can get what we, the best we can do is just by being nice to um, to, 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 uh, to white Democrats. And they will do okay by us if we're nice to them. And they won't give us anything if we're not nice to them. And if we're not nice to them, like, you gotta be like Django and mow them all down. Or you are nice to them, you can be like Sam and he'll get you like, you know, an extra piece of bread. Um, and so what does that mean that our politics is governed by the idea that we must be nice to white Democrats? And what does it mean that Cory Bush can actually, um, by not being nice and openly not nice to Democrats, because this power, this, this doesn't work if you protest Republicans. You have to protest people whose whole gimmick is that they're on our side. Um, so that's, and that actually destabilizes their whole grift, right? So you got to protest Democrats if you're going to protest. And it's, yeah, you have to do it in a, like, in a public way, you have to say like, no, Chuck Schumer, no, Nancy Pelosi, these are the problems. Joe Biden is the problem. Because as soon as you say Trump is a problem, like, like America's built for that. Um, 
So it's not going to be too particularly destabilizing. But by the way, if you like anything I'm doing, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in $5.15 or $50 a month because um, because depending on who you talk to, one, I make myself down white unemployable. Two, I'm giving you a quality of politics that you're not going to hear every day um, because it doesn't pay. And, you know, nobody's going to tell you that that Jim Clyburn is, is you know, draw the distinction. I mean, draw the, the line between Booker T. Washington, Jim Clyburn, and Morgan Freeman and driving Miss Daisy. But they were all selling a politics of like, if you just kiss nice white people's butts, they'll give you nice things out of charity. Out of charity, out of their charity. You can't insult them. You got to be nice to them. Um, uh, and they'll give it to you out of charity. I'll give you a preview because, I, like I said, I'm going to do a few shows next week. I'll give you another preview of a show I'm going to do on manners. Um, uh, you know, Robin D'Angelo, you say what you want to about her, and you can say a lot of things about her. She makes a lot of money off of talking to the quality of corporate uh, donors who would never actually fly me out to the retreat, but they fly her. Robin D'Angelo of, of white fragility fame. Uh, she just came out a book about nice racism and I saw an interview with her and she's actually, it's actually a pretty good interview. It's on PBS. So if you just put on PBS, Robin D'Angelo, GPB, I think probably Georgia public radio. And um, the most recent one came out like a day or two ago on nice racism. And she says, she says a few provocative things that I think, I think are true. And I think it's important that they're true. And um, we have to just talk about the role of manners in providing the conditions for freedom and providing the conditions for, for subjugation, right? So it's easy to say that manners calcify injustice. You go to the South, you'll see that a lot of the injustice and our inability to talk about injustice is, is held with the idea that you know, Southern manners, it's just impolite. Um, to, to tell the truth about white people to white people. And not only is it impolite, it's dangerous, but it's mostly impolite and also dangerous. And, um, and the impoliteness uh, kind of masks the real issues that are going on and the real degradation that black people have faced every day here. So how did that come to be and how does it work? Well, you have to understand a few things. Manners are also good. You need manners for freedom. And why do you need manners for freedom? Because manners are the institutional norms that allow us to be what we are. You can't be a soccer player if other people around you use their hands to pick up the ball whenever they want to. Right? You can't be a soccer player if, man, if other people... And, um, and so that is a, like one of the institutional norms that allow you to be a soccer player. That's the difference between soccer and rugby. Like one has one set of manners, the other has a different set of manners. Right? So you need a set of these institutional specific uh institutionally specific rules that everyone abides to in order to actually be a functional anything um because if you just throw off those rules then nobody can be anything there's a no there are no soccer players if there's like if everyone on the field can use the hands at all time right so you need these kinds of constraints and these constraints come as manners um they become as manners when you can't really explain to everyone or protocols, or why you have constraints. I got three kids. I can't explain everything to them all the time. So um, in order for them to be free and I, them to flourish, they have to listen to me. But not mostly because I say so, I'll explain to them why, but I can't expect them to understand because they just don't know enough to understand. If I want a construction site, I don't know the protocols in a construction site. I have to do what the person tells me to because they tell me to. 
because I don't know my way around a construction site. I don't, I can't judge whether blank and blank is safe or whether blank and blank is not. So I just have to do what they tell me because they tell me to. I have to behave the way they want me to if I go on a submarine or a boat the same way. And, um, and that's like appropriate. And that is fully appropriate because we live in a specific and kind of sophisticated world where everyone can't know everything and be expected to explain everything to everybody else. Right? So you can't spend all day explaining to me why you need me to behave a certain way in this like very complicated um, space. Right? So man, there is a place in manners for freedom. However, <laughs> like I suggested before, there's also a place in which these manners, once they get um, emancipated from the, um, the origin as institutions of freedom, can just become calcified origins of injustice. Right? So we find ourselves having all of the manners of like Jim Crow uh, um, era, uh, you know, Southern life, and that's going to be a problem because those manners will then calcify uh, structures of injustice. And if you kind of build conflict aversion on top of that, then you can't contest the manners in a way. Um, so like I'll get into all of this next week. Uh, like I said, when I do two shows. But just think that, I'll give you a preview. Like think, manners are necessary for freedom insofar as they um, institutionalize a quality of respect and forbearance that everyone has to show in order for us to be free. And not in, in all of these different institutions that we can't necessarily uh, be expected to understand enough to, to, to legitimize our behavior, right? So we can't, like I said, I can't expect my kids to understand why they should do everything that they should do. But yes, I can't expect them to obey me because I'm their dad. Right, so, and to build that into manners is fine. But it's out of respect for them that they have to behave this way. Um, and, and I'll explain it to them even if I can't expect them to actually understand the explanation. It'll make sense in time, right? And that's a form of manners that's good and actually consistent with freedom. Um, and then the manners that's inconsistent with freedom is manners that's been completely cast off from its ethical grounding in freedom and just actually just sustain a quality of injustice because it makes certain people feel good. Right. So I'll talk about that a little bit next week. Actually, like I said, I'll do two shows next week. If you like what I'm doing, go ahead and kick in uh, 5 15 or $50 a month um, because I'd like to grow, and I think the world would be a better place if more people saw this. Take care, and I will talk to you at another time. If you appreciate the work I do every week and you think that I should continue to do it because I'm giving you the quality of political knowledge and insight that will help you not squander your life and kind of rescue meaning from it, then go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month, or make one enormous donations. I like the monthlies because it allows me to budget more and that'll help me, you know, with a marketing budget or getting better equipment that works all the time because a lot of, in a lot of ways, freedom means having equipment that works every time you turn it on. <laughs> and I want to be a free Negro. So, um, if you like what I do, go to funkyacademic.com and contribute. Thanks often comes in the form of cash and the site takes 
credit cards. If you appreciate the work I do every week and you think that I should continue to do it because I'm giving you the quality of political knowledge and insight that will help you 